about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 32 to 511. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, from time, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's continue to the end of chapter 5. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those who tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, 
the full assembly of the elders of Israel and sent to, to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the, apostles, the officers did not find them hit there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Judas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. We're considering how, despite the fact that Jesus has left and ascended to the Father, that his mission is unfinished. He has poured out the Spirit, sent out his witnesses to the ends of the earth to tell the world that he has been raised from the dead. What we saw last week was that in amongst that preaching, there was a rising level of threat against the apostles and the mission of Christ. And that we had to meet that level of threat with courage. What we see in chapter 5 is that when people courageously and boldly witness to who Jesus is, resistance will deepen and come. If you want to be someone of courage, you will have to face persistent and escalating resistance at times. 
Some of our brothers and sisters in Indonesia know that this morning, having been attacked as they sat in church like we do. I think Acts 4 and 5 lays out for us what that resistance looks like. At the end of the day, there's only really two types of resistance to the Christian message, to the Christian mission, to the mission of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I want to look at both of those today. They're in our text. But then I want to give you one reason from the text about why, despite the awful things that can happen and the resistance that can rise in our world, nothing will stop Jesus. The two types of resistance and the reason why nothing will stop Jesus. The first type of resistance you see uh, in the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, and it's a bit counterintuitive. The first counterattack is not persecution or hostility. It's hypocrisy. That is counterintuitive at first, but when you think about it a bit further, hypocritical Christians have done some of the most damaging thing to the church, even in the most recent days coming out of, say, the Royal Commission. People who claim to be of Jesus but are deviously the very abhorrent opposite can destroy the church. And it happens in Acts chapter 5. Now, the context for this hypocrisy is actually the extraordinary working of God at the end of chapter 4. Have a look at verse 32 to 37, you get this picture of uh, having uh, been put in prison and questioned. They step out boldly, they proclaim about Jesus, and it's like the miracles go next level. Like, everyone starts to get healed constantly to the point where, um, you know, uh, there's this miraculous thing that starts happening amongst God's people, which is kind of surprising. What's the mark of God being powerfully at work? In verse 32 to 36, It's actually generosity. Did you see that? No one claimed in verse 32 that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared. And then again in 34, there was no needy persons among them. From from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. When we expect God to be powerfully at work, we expect to feel things and taste things and see things, but What happens here is that people's wallets open. That's the sign of when God is remarkably at work, when the gospel drops in the soul. People lose their grip on their wealth. On the things that they call theirs, that they long for greedily, they start to lose their shine when you realize that God has saved you by His grace and has an eternal security for you. Money changes. That might be surprising to you tonight. Maybe this... This verse might provoke you a little bit. If you're longing for God to work in your life, God might actually be longing to open your wallet. And maybe this might prompt you tonight to think, well, what is happening in my generosity? How, how is my giving to church? How is my giving to the poor? How is my just everyday openness to the needs uh, of the people around me and my open-handedness to them? When God is powerfully at work, There is radical generosity amongst God's people. And that is the context for the hypocrisy in this case. Because if you think about it, how do you you counterattack that kind of miraculous community? A community that's one in heart and mind, that's radically generous. What do you do with that? The answer is 
you create a counterfeit right alongside. Something that looks exactly the same, but is actually not like it at all. And you discredit the real thing through the fake thing. And that is exactly what happens here. We learn about Barnabas in verse 36 and 37 who sold the piece of property and gave it to the apostles. The real deal. And then Ananias and Sapphira, they do the same thing but sort of. They take the property, they sell it, and they take part of the amount and they put it at the apostles' feet as if it was the whole amount. They are claiming to be what Barnabas was, to have the level of generosity that Barnabas had. They want entry and recognition deeply into the community. But they are actually not what they seem at all. They're counterfeits. Peter, as he talks to Ananias, says, you could have just kept the money. You could have just given part. You didn't have to give it all. But what you have done is an act of rebellion against the Holy Spirit that rules this community who is knitting it together. You have sinned and lied to him in verse 3. He even calls it a satanic thing. Has Satan so filled your heart? Because that is the origin of this attack. How does the enemy take down genuine community? Through painting a counterfeit that could pull it apart. What happens next seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Ananias drops dead. Sapphira walks in. Peter offers her a chance. She lies as well. She drops dead. What's happening here? There's only one other case of someone who drops dead in Acts. Herod does uh, uh, in chapter 12, I think, beginning of chapter 12. He's an evil king, so it kind of makes sense. But what's, what's this about? Well, the reality is is that the church is in such an embryonic stage. The community forming powerfully in the power of the Spirit and, and a counterfeit at such an early stage threatens to unravel the whole community. This hypocrisy could destroy the mission before it really gets going and so the Lord Jesus protects His church with an act of judgment. What is on display here is the reality that hypocrisy like this can do great damage to the church. And we know this, don't we? If you think of the church in Ireland and how the abuse of children at the hands of priests has killed faith in the whole country. That level of hypocrisy has killed faith For so many people, hypocrisy of Christians can do enormous damage to the mission of the risen Christ. On the flip side, we might be able to read it maybe in a slightly more positive light and say that one of the number one uh, targets of our enemy is your integrity. He hates it. He would love to replace it with hypocrisy for you to pretend to be something on the surface but not really to be it in your heart and in your soul and really in your life at all because he could use that. And so your integrity is a vital part 
of the mission of Christ in this world. But if we're honest, all of us are hypocrites, aren't we? That's why we're in church. Because we know we're not okay. I know I'm not okay. Do you know what the off-ramp to hypocrisy is? It's honesty. Not perfection. See, the problem of hypocrisy is pretending that you're perfect. Pretending that you are what you are. Honesty is saying, I would love to be generous like this. But instead, I'm here. Poor and incomplete and greedy. If you feel stuck between your public persona and your private self tonight, then honesty is your way out. Finding a brother and sister. That's the moment that Peter offers Sapphira a moment to be honest that she doesn't take and judgment falls on her instead. There is nothing that has happened in your life, no shame that means you cannot come in honesty to your brothers and sisters, the ones you trust, the ones you love. Because hypocrisy is a real attack and possible problem in the church. That's the first counterattack. The second counterattack is a little bit more what we're used to. It's the hostile, violent kind. And, and the context for this attack is, once again, the powerful working of God's Spirit. Uh, the apostles and their kind of miraculous signs in kind of 5, 12 to 16 hit next level. There's so much power being dished out that kind of everyone around is sort of freaked out and doesn't want to join the believers uh, in verse 12, uh, in verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Instead, what they do is they hide in the alleyways around the temple, and as Peter walks by, they kind of shove their sick out just in case his shadow strikes them. You know, this is like full Peter Pan shadow we're talking about here. You know, if, if Peter's shadow fell on there, they thought, it doesn't say that it healed, but it, it kind of is implied that maybe something would happen if you got that close to Peter. That's the kind of power and level of, of, of things that were happening around the church at this time. And, and the result is that the whole of Jerusalem is transfixed with what is happening around the apostles and the preaching about Jesus and the power and the healing. Even people outside Jerusalem in verse 16 are gathering in because it, it's just so incredible what God is doing. But in verse 17, the leaders look on, and what happens? They're filled with jealousy. It's almost such a common emotion, it's kind of boring, isn't it? That's the reason this gets going, because you were jealous. But what's happening here is what the apostles have is what they would long for, or maybe what they used to have, a, a spellbound authority and influence over the people of Jerusalem. And the ascension of the apostles is the dissension of the Sadducees and the high priests and their influence. It's like their honor is being pushed down by what is happening. And they want it back. And so they throw the, uh, the apostles into jail. That doesn't go so well. An angel lets them back out. And they, they grab them again after they've been preaching and, and pull them and accost them. And you get to the full kind of depth of what's happening for them in verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. That's happened in chapter 4. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. See, there's the rub of the problem for them. 
when the apostles preached that they killed God's Messiah, it's not only that their honor is being uh, lowered, it's that they are being publicly shamed. That they are not the leaders of God's people, but they are the opponents of the living God. They're being taken from up here to down here by the preaching of the apostles. And that is what fills them with jealousy and hatred in the end and violence toward the apostles. Now, despite that, God saves them twice in this passage. Once by an angel, which is just cool, letting them out of prison and the kind of magic trick. And then again, through the like an argument from an old man, which is just incredible on a different level. We'll get to that argument a bit later. And, and, and the apostles' response to what is happening is simple. We have to obey God, whether you like it or not. Peter says, we must obey God, verse 29, rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, and God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, obedience, underline, front and end. And then they go out and be obedient to the angel and they keep preaching God's word. Their response, as should be our response to growing hostility, is obedience anyway. Obedience to the resurrected Christ, to his mission and his message of forgiveness. When hostility comes, God's people are called to obey. And that's tricky for the apostles, because did you notice that God saves them twice, but not a third time? At the end of the story, they get flogged. Verse 40. 39 lashes. Much more violence than you will ever receive in Sydney for preaching the gospel. Why doesn't God save them from that? He sent an angel to get them out of prison. He uses an old man to stop them from being executed. And yet, surely he could have stopped this happening. But the reality is, is that God protected them for the sake of witnessing to Jesus. And that is the same reason why the lashes fall. When the lashes fall on the apostles, it's like their witnessing goes to a new level. They start to physically bear the message they preach with their mouths. That the shameful Christ is the only hope of the world. That the way to life is through death. That by wounds we are healed. That's why they walk out having been lashed, rejoicing. Because they get the fact that they have been remarkably included in the story of the Christ to become a living, bodily, enfleshed witness to his suffering and death for the forgiveness of the world. Their obedience does end in suffering, but is used by God as part of their witness. I think it's a really helpful thing for us. I'm born and raised in Sydney and I love being comfortable and safe because that is all I've ever known. 
And I love that. But the reality is, is obedience to the resurrected Christ will mean, has meant, and will continue to mean that I will lose things. That you will lose things. That it might cost you friendships or family or money or job opportunities or the things you really want in this world but you can't have if you really want to be obedient to who Jesus is. And we look at these things and say, I don't want these things. I want to be a follower of Jesus and be comfortable and safe. Is that too hard to ask? But what this tells us is, if in the course of our obedience to Jesus, in our want to, to witness to the fact that he is raised from the dead, we lose things. What happens? We start to embody the message of the gospel in our own self. That it is through losing that God saves the world. That it is through shame that honor comes. That it is through dying that you will live. And that is why the disciples, the apostles, consider it an honor rather than a shame. And we need that. You need that in your discipleship. That picture, that vision of God even in the midst of our suffering, including us miraculously in the mission of the Christ to proclaim forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. Continue in obedience, even when it costs you. So hypocrisy and hostility, they're the two things. In every Christian age, they are exactly the same or a combination of the two, but that is it. It's good to look at it all in one page and go, oh, it's just hypocrisy. It's just hostility. And there's a reason in the text, in the speech from Gamaliel, about how actually in the end these two things will never stop Jesus. Why? Because they are only human. Because they are only human. I love Gamaliel's speech. I think I find in it the reason why I'm a Christian at all. It's a beautiful thing, and it's helpful because it looks on the, the, this early moment of the Christian movement, not from 21st century eyes, but 1st century eyes. In the 1st century and, and in the centuries before it, there were lots of people who claimed to be something, a Messiah, a Christ, a God-anointed figure, a powerful person on God's behalf. And into that climate, every single one of them had been a failure except Jesus. And so Gamaliel talks about that history and explains these movements and what to do with these apostles despite the fact that everyone wants to kill them. He says in verse 35, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. And he gives two case examples of people who had great movements who after they died, everything stopped. Here's Thutis in verse 36 who claimed to be a sort of magician Claimed he could part water. People thought he was a bit crazy, but was you know important enough that they went and killed him very quickly. And his movement only lasted a very short period of time. We read about it in Josephus. Um, and it said here, he was killed and all his followers were dispersed. Judas the Galilean uh, was a really prominent one. We, we read about him in Josephus as well. Uh, we know about these characters. Uh, and he was kind of like the original conservative nationalist Israelite, basically. Uh, he got the movement going and he decided that they should revolt against Rome and stop paying 
taxes. And heaps of people flocked to his cause, but still they killed him and it ended. Because this is what happens to would-be messiahs. You string them up, you chop off their head, you put them to death, and the movement dies. And so when Jesus is strung up on a cross, his movement should die. There is no first century reason why a crucified man's mission will continue unless, in terms of Gamaliel, it's from God. You see what he says? In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will find yourselves fighting against God. And we stand 2,000 years later. And the crucified Messiah's mission still goes on. You sitting in church tonight are testament to the fact that Christianity is true. Because there is no other explanation for a crucified Messiah's movement to move beyond its century than if God fans the flame of it. And in the last 2,000 years, there has been no hypocrisy within the church, nor any persecution from outside the church that has stopped the movement of the ascended and risen, crucified Christ. And so it doesn't matter how bad it looks in the current day or how many scandals come from within the church, how many counterfeits, how many false pastors and priests, no matter how much violence and blood is shed, you cannot stop the ascended Christ. Because every opposition is human. And he is the living and risen God. I want to call you to confidence this evening. That you might feel like the church has done a bit. That secularism has pushed us out. Be confident. Nothing can stop him. Instead, be honest about your own failings with each other and be obedient even when it costs you and be confident and wait for him to come again. Because the reality is, and you might be scared by those things, honesty, obedience, confidence, but the reality is that Jesus Christ hung on a tree so that even your deepest shame could be taken away from you. And you can honestly give it to a brother or sister. Jesus Christ hung on a tree, cursed by God, because you are not obedient. And he is. So that in his power you might become obedient. Jesus Christ hung on a tree to demonstrate that even when the world forsook the Messiah, God was conquered. So that we could say, no matter what happens in the world, our Christ will come and his mission will be victorious. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the vision of this chapter, the simplicity of it, the reality that the, the things we think might kill the church can't because you reign. 
because this isn't just a human thing we're gathered around tonight, but it is fanned by your spirit about your son, under your control. And Father, we pray for the seeds of hypocrisy in all of us, the, the pretend versus the reality. And we, we want that person, Father, to be honest with tonight. Some people are so shameful that they don't want to say the things in their heart, but I pray you set them free tonight through honesty. And Father, for people who are facing choices of obedience that will cost them, Father, fill them with the courage of your spirit. And it doesn't matter what it costs, and you will use the cost to display Jesus. Father, fill us with confidence that nothing will stop Jesus until he comes again. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.